Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire production. production. Welcome everybody. We're back uh, for podcast number 220 and uh, very excited today because we have a a really a good interview with a special person that I will introduce in a little bit, but I'm happy to announce that Bliss is back with us uh, for at least this part of the uh, podcast. So Bliss, tell, Hi. Us, tell us where you are. Hi, um, currently I am in Idaho in a little hot spring town. Um, been doing a lot of traveling. When did we, when did we connect last? You were remember? still in Iowa. Oh, I was still, that's right. So I was still in Iowa. So um, my bionic woman now, Hope, is uh, being rebuilt part by part. Um, she got her new transmission and we went on to um, Devil's Tower. And then we went on to go to Yellowstone, which I had been, I think I must have been on the upper loop and not the lower loop when I had been before, but wow, it is one of the most amazing and strangest things I've ever seen. Um, yeah, the, 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 what do they call them? I want to say hot pools. Do you remember what the actual term they're, is? They're like geysers. Thermal springs or geysers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thermal springs. Um, they just, they end up looking when you get close to them, they end up looking like you're on another planet. And, um, but then lots of areas of the park are green and lush with big rivers. And then, um, the boys and I, before we got to the thermal Springs, got into the water and lower down the water was cold. But when we got there, the water was really warm and they were like, wow, it's so warm. Um, and then when we got up later, you can see it pouring into the river the hot springs. Um, so the water is just delicious. It was just such an amazing experience. Sounds like a great week. Yeah. And you and I were supposed to connect for the interview and I, I got the time zones wrong. So I popped in and you're like, well, we've been on for an hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so easy I'm to do when you come from the central time zone, you had crossed into the mountain time zone and didn't realize that you were now an hour sooner. And yeah. so you came on an hour late. So we, so Ivy and I had our conversation without you, but yeah. which I'm sure would have been better with you, but I hope that our listeners will, will enjoy that. We'll get to that in just a second. I wanted to just update you on my week, which was uh, my birthday week. Yes. And I had was. a great, I had a great birthday week. I mean, I had nothing planned and it turned out to be one of my best birthday weeks ever. Um, Yay. Yeah, I mean, it was highlighted by having dinner with some friends of mine, but the highlight was really the day I spent with my kids on Saturday. Some of you may have seen that on my Instagram posts where um, Maddie and Max took me shopping first and bought me some clothes so that I could be a little more stylish for certain things, which of course I never really have an opportunity to go anywhere where I'd have to dress stylishly. But um, my daughter is really into uh, current trends. She just knows stuff. Yeah. So it was fun to go shopping with her and, and, and to be in a mall where it was about me and <laughs> all my life when I go to the mall it was always about her. So this was kind of, that's, 
fun. And, and then fun. We, and then the twins joined us at a golf at a little par three golf course, and we played golf. And I had uh, we all had we all had at least one great shot on the course. I mean, Maddie chipped in from off the green, and Alex made a putt from like really far away, and and Max got a, a par or two, and. On the last two holes, I got a par, and then I actually got an actual birdie on the last hole, which for me as a, you know, uh, not a very good golfer, but a decent iron player, so it was just a thrill. And to have my kids celebrate and be so excited about it. And then we went for dinner at a little local restaurant where the food is average, it's called Micelli's, but, they, but the waitresses are all singers. And so yeah. they, they entertain you and they do show tunes and we all sang and we had a good time and we had shots um, uh, for my birthday and my daughter drove so that I didn't have to worry about that and it was just a great Aww. time and then then yesterday my friend Cece took me kayaking uh, in, uh, in the ocean in Oxnard and mm -hmm. uh, so it was just it was really just a real nice week to celebrate you know my 65th journey around the sun. You deserve and, all of that right and, and more. Well, and it, you know, it's one of the things of the podcast themes is also a theme of my life as it's evolved to this point is that I'm big on honesty and I'm a big on gratitude and I, and, and we like to run our podcast that way. We like to be grateful for things and we like to be honest about things. Sometimes honesty isn't always peaceful and kind. Sometimes honesty can be difficult, but um, gratitude is always one of the rarer traits and it's really nice when people express gratitude. So for everybody that was involved in my birthday week, um, much gratitude to all of you. And then all the messages yeah. I got, I, you know, I, I couldn't go through them all, but I mean, I got so many messages from people um, all over the world, really through the Instagram or Facebook, uh, you know, that whole thing where you get all these loving things and people would tell me stories and they tell me about, they tell me their birth story, remind me of, of their birth story and how I, I affected them. So feeling really grateful for that. Um, another thing I'm feeling grateful for is last week I had two, tran uh, two transports from home births, um, but both of them were examples of what I would love to see happen worldwide, which is the um, smooth transition and collaboration. One was a VBAC and she got to about four centimeters and then got really exhausted and didn't really change her cervix over 24 hours. And so she went into a local hospital where we had a physician that we knew. And over the, I think it was, I think it was almost 24 hours later, she had a, um, I think she had a vacuum assisted delivery, but she had a bat, she got her successful VBAC. And she, awesome. you know, there were things that didn't go exactly as she wanted to, but I don't think she would have wanted it any other way. And even a, even a greater rarity is the, we had a breach a 47-year-old woman who had a breech baby that was a donor embryo, but um, she really did not want to have a hospital birth. And she lived a far away, far, far away. And she would come down to the birth center where she was getting her prenatal care until they found out she was breached and then they no longer could care for her. So then she contacted me and she finally went into labor at 41 weeks and two days and drove all the way down to a local uh, uh, facility here where she labored uh, and got to about six to seven centimeters and then just sort of stayed there for many, many hours and got really tired. And I was about ready to transfer her to the local backup hospital for her C-section, which of course is really the only choice since Dr. Right. Wu has passed away. Um, but Stephanie, who we all love, um, was her photographer and she said, 
why don't you call Barry Brock? And I said, yeah, why not? So why not? I called Barry, I texted Barry Brock and he called me back within a minute. And I said, Barry, I got a patient here who's breached. Is there any chance she stalled out, but I think she can do it. Is there any chance that you'll take her and give her the opportunity with an epidural of Pitocin? And like one word came out of his mouth. Sure. Great. Yeah. Yay, Barry. Like, Whoa. I said, sure. And he said, yeah, sure. For you, I'll do it. And not a problem. Because I think he trusts me that, that I wouldn't be picking a breach that, that doesn't meet criteria or anything like that. He knows uh, what a stickler I am for that sort of thing. And so she went in um, about 11 o'clock at night and about a little afternoon the next day. So maybe uh, 13 hours later, she had a vaginal breach birth. That's um, amazing. Right. Yay. And, Thank uh, you, Dr. Brock. Yep. We need more more collaboration for sure, Stu. That would make things so much better for so many women. So yeah, families. So mm -hmm. today's the thing about uh, I'm being honest about my feelings of gratitude for Dr. Brock. So. <laughs> I wanted to share something that came to mind um, while I was uh, in Iowa. Um, you know, I've kind of decided, you know, that the only thing that I'm really committing to is an hour to record the podcast, and I'm not really um working during this time but i got a uh instagram direct message from one of our listeners um she was in michigan she was uh 36 weeks pregnant and was asking me questions about gbs and declining antibiotics and um it didn't seem like a straightforward kind of conversation and so i said you know I'm not really working right now, but I'd be happy to send you my informed consents and do a consultation with you guys, you know, blah, 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 blah. And uh, she said, great, we would love that. And I don't know, I don't know what it was about her story. It just really like- Resonated. Yeah, I just wanted to help them, you know? Um, and it turns out that she, besides wanting to have more information about what it would be like to decline antibiotics, we went through that full informed consent that we've talked about before on the podcast. But she, one of the things that was interesting about her story is she really wanted a home birth, but she got pressured from family members. We've heard this story many times before, too. And so her sister or her sister-in-law had uh, delivered with a midwife in the hospital, had a really great experience. So she decided to go in that direction. That midwife ended up moving away during her pregnancy. So she's not even getting that experience. But she did um, the maternity 21 because she was interested, again, for social pressure region, reasons and her family members to get the gender. And she got a 50% uh, possibility of having a baby that had Downs. Um, they declined doing the amniocentesis um, and every other test that they've done so far has shown no indications, any kind of markers that the baby is positive for Downs but she's now in a high risk category because of this decision that she made to take the test to find out about the gender. And so we had a lot of conversations about that. Um, and it was just really interesting because you and I have, have seen that trend as well of people choosing to do this. She wasn't, she's not even um, over 35. She's actually a younger woman as well. Um, and then having these potentially false positives and, and going down that whole rabbit hole of having your whole pregnancy affected by that decision. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing as well. And she's, um, they said they felt so much better after talking to me and um, we're going to do another consult coming up. So I got kind of 
looped in a little bit, but I'm really enjoying it. Yes, Stu's raising his hand. You can't see it on the podcast. Call on me, call why, on me. Why does her possibly having a Downs baby make her high risk? Yeah, it's a good question, right? Especially once they've ruled out the heart condition, which is what I talked to her about. Like the, the you know, the biggest thing that we uh, kind of look for if we were doing an out-of-hospital delivery is to make sure that the baby um, wouldn't need immediate attention because uh, um, potentially having heart abnormalities would be something that should be ruled out. But yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. Well, yeah, and we've talked about the podcast before we did have a client who had Downs and who maybe did have some sort of heart defect and the, but we made, uh, we made a working arrangement with her and she had a home water birth and about an hour after birth, the baby was still not saturating up at 90% or above, which was thought that that might happen. So we ended up taking the baby to the hospital where they observed the baby for 24 hours, did nothing and sent the baby home, but she got the birth that she wanted and the cardiology team was there. They were, there were like 20 people waiting for the baby because it was all, we, we had all done in advance and the baby de needed nothing. The baby needed heart surgery when it was about three months old or six months old or something where they, they don't obviously do things right away when they don't need to. So ultimately yeah. the fact that this baby may be Downs but probably may not be because most Downs babies at the 20 week scan are gonna have some right. hard or soft markers for, uh, mm -hmm. for Down syndrome and it's very unusual that they don't. And um, so her birth could still be the same birth that she wanted especially if she's good, if she has a good team available and knows that if the baby doesn't start, you know, doesn't saturate well after a while that the baby could go and be observed at the hospital where. Well, she's having a hospital delivery, but they want to do a lot of additional testing because of that initial uh, positive oh. result. Yeah. So they want to, oh. you know, starting at 36, 37 weeks, they want to see her twice a week for uh, an STs. So. I don't know that there's data. I don't know that there's data on that. So I think they're yeah. obviously just erring on the side of what they always err on the side of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Spe interesting. Speaking of erring on the side, this is a perfect segue because I want to emphasize last week's podcast. I interviewed uh, Alex and Gabe uh, Basso, and Gabe said something that I want to I want to re-emphasize for people that maybe didn't hear the last podcast or maybe it blew by too quick. But he talked about skewed risk counseling, and he said something like. When they went to a regular doctor for, EC, uh, for external cephalic version, the, the, the warnings about the rare ECV complications were legion. They were just, they went through all these things that could potentially happen and that will do it in the operating room. And if things go wrong, we'll have the OR team will be available and blah, 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 blah. Basically making it seem like it's this really scary procedure when it's a really rare complication. Um, so he said, with that counseling, they're emphasizing the real rare complication because they don't want you to do the thing. Right. All right. Then he says, with the vaccine, which has a much higher complication rate than ECV does, they don't mention the complications when they're counseling you about the vaccine. And it's sort of very similar to the thing that we talk about with the breach guidelines and ACOG. ACOG talks about breach being acceptable, but you need to counsel a woman about all the possibilities of the, or consequences of choosing a vaginal breech birth. But they don't talk about the consequences of choosing cesarean breech birth. Right. So it really is interesting and people really need to be aware and Gabe was really on top of this, of the fact that when you're getting counseling from anybody, they're skewing their counseling. You and I try not to, but we have our biases, but everybody should take it with a grain of salt when they, 
when fear is the first thing that comes out of their of their mouth because if it's so dangerous then why is it a procedure at all being offered <laughs> that sort of thing and then yeah. when they don't and when we know that there are complications of something and they don't talk about it that's also a, should be a red flag for people i just thought that that was really interesting with, with how he as a layperson picked that up right away and he recognized it right away yeah they were they're very smart couple it was a great interview i really enjoyed listening to it i'm sure our listeners did as well all right i got i got a i got a COVID update that was supposed to be really brief but it got a little bit longer but i have to get this in because so much is happening and and we really need to talk about this stuff so i have a real quick note that i just got about a half an hour before we came on you and i right now Perfect. Uh, from michelle who's a no-cal midwife her her handle is a barefoot midwife mm -hmm. and she says hi Stu. as you may have heard Governor Newsom here in California has mandated all state and healthcare workers to get the jab or be subjected to weekly testing beginning next month. Now, I had not heard that, but I guess that must be something that just came out in the news. This is one of those things that I always wonder if it's so important to do it, why are we waiting till next month to do it? This is why it's the same sort of thing. Like, I get pe people, we need to induce your baby because your baby is small, so we'll set it up for next week. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and what is what? And what is a test once a week really going to do? You could get exposed the day after you well, get of course. the test. Yeah, of course. yes. It's just punishment. Yeah. It basically, it's punishment for not getting the right. vaccine. Right. So she says, my husband is a nurse in the OR here at a local hospital in NoCal. What can be done? This is medical freedom overreach. I just listened to your latest podcast about the jab and curious to know your thoughts and if you know any actions that can be taken against this tyranny. And so I wrote her back and I said, it's really hard because we are in, as individuals are, are not organized. And I would tell you that most people in the country, we're all being gaslighted, we're being gaslighted to believe that this is something that most people want. And I would tell you that the 50% of people that in the country who haven't been vaccinated don't want this. And probably half the people who've been vaccinated don't think mandates and tyranny are a good idea. And yet okay. we're being told that this is absolutely necessary. And what I would do if I was, feeling this way, even if I was vaccinated or unvaccinated, it doesn't matter, is if there was a way to organize at all, I would just tell these people that work at his hospital or other hospitals to just say, okay, well, we're, then we're not gonna show up for work. None of us are. And we're not gonna show up at work until you take away the mandate until Governor Newsom resigns. And if all the healthcare workers in the state who felt this way, whether they be, as I said, unvaccinated healthcare workers who have who are wise because they're healthcare workers. They know, understand the reasons not to take the vaccine. Right. And for those freedom loving people who've been vaccinated, who think that, well, I'm vaccinated, it's fine. But I also, even if it wasn't fine, I got to stand up for freedom. I got to stand up for individual liberty. And so mm -hmm. if all these people just said, okay, well, all right, well, we'll just none of us will come to work and we'll see how long, who wins? We'll play chicken with the governor mm -hmm. and say who wins. Mm -hmm. And I think that more people need to stand up to this. I can say this, Partly because I don't really have a dog in that fight, because I would I would stand side by side with these people, but I don't, you know, I'm a healthcare worker and I'm not going to get vaccinated at least not yet, and, but I don't work I don't I I won't lose my job over it, that sort of thing. And you're right yeah. about being swabbed once a week. What is that going to do? First of all, we know that the swab test has so many problems. All right. The second thing I have to read I have to read this into into the into the record. This is from the Daily Mail which is a British newspaper, people probably heard of it, by a member of parliament named, I think he's a member of parliament named Graham Brady. And he writes this about 
The purpose of masks for, is for social control and, to, and, to, and it's time to turn down the fear dial. All right, on August 23rd, 1973, an attempted bank robbery at Stockholm's Norman's, I can't say the word, Norman's Square went badly wrong. Four hostages were taken and the drama ended only five days later when tear gas forced the robbers to surrender. The holdup would doubtless have been forgotten but for the odd reaction of the hostages who formed a close bond with their jailers. And, and it was the events of those few days that gave their name to something now commonly described as Stockholm syndrome. Right. We've all heard that, okay. Mm -hmm. This phenomenon has often been identified in the half century since the, since the normal Sporg square <laughs> event, but it has been remarkable to see it exhibited by whole swaths of the British public over the past year. After 16 months of being told by the state when we could leave our homes, whether we could see our families and whom we were allowed to have sex or what kinds of sports we were permitted to play, many of us are eager to regain the human dignity that comes with the exercise of our own free will. Others reacted differently, however. How far tomorrow looks like real Freedom Day, and apparently they have a Freedom Day that was coming up last week, will be, will be up to all of us to, and our determination to return to normal life. When told that their double vaccination gives them substantial protection from serious illness, people worry that the jabs might work today, but what about next month or next year? What if a new variant comes along that can evade the vaccines altogether? For many months, the evidence has shown that most likely places to catch COVID are care homes, hospitals, and private homes. But opinion polls show a widespread fantasy that the real dangers are from international travel, pubs, and restaurants. The government's least rational restrictions have played up to these unfounded prejudices, of course. The closure of COVID secure restaurants last autumn came shortly after the sage advisors, I think he's being sarcastic, published advice that doing so would unlikely make much difference. Similarly, making people jump through endless hoops and take multiple expensive tests if they want to fly to a safe and sunny country for a week or two by the sea must make those who don't study the evidence believe that going to Mallorca is pretty ris risky business. The trouble with Stockholm syndrome is that the greater the control to which people are subjected, the greater the dependence people develop. The fine line between coercion and care becomes blurred. The hostage starts to see the man with the AK-47 who holds him in a cell, not as a jailer, but as a protector. For 16 months, the British population has been subject, not just to minute control, but to a constantly changing menu of restrictions. Then he says this, which is really interesting. Why not tell people that while the nasty new variant remains a statistical possibility, that vaccine seems pretty effective against all those who have appeared so far and is likely to remain so in the future. First, you were banned from sitting on a park bench but could walk through the park. Then you could sit with a friend but only on opposite ends of the bench. Next, you could talk to a friend outdoors but not in a private garden. For months, we could leave our homes for only one form of exercise for shopping or for work. Then we were told it was safer to be outside all the time. This one I love. We could walk across a golf course with a friend so long as no funny business like playing golf was involved. <laughs> right, this is like two people in a boat, three people in a boat, the things that I yeah, always yeah. rail on. Yeah. But I asked the health minister in the commons how she could justify banning healthy activities such as golf, tennis, or bowls. I guess that's lawn bowling, I suppose. Yeah. She actually replied that while those activities were indeed safe, if, quote, we let 
people do these things, they might think they can do other things too. What does that sound like? Sounds like sounds like your parents when you're like five. <laughs> right. How far a proud nation has allowed itself to fall. So as we approach tomorrow's partial lifting of restrictions, which would have been last week or two weeks ago by the time this is aired, some of us eagerly anticipate being allowed to have a family meal again in our own homes and will do so. Yet there are others who are anxious and are asking for restrictions to go on for just a bit longer. We see this divide most clearly in the near hysteria about face masks and nobody is asking the serious questions about whether face masks are actually effective in stopping the spread of COVID. Until very recently, both the World Health Organization and the public health authorities in this country were saying that there was very little evidence in favor of wearing them. The experience of different US states is instructive. California covered up, Florida didn't, but it was a sunshine state that emerged in better shape from the pandemic. We might also look at what happened here. Masks seem to have helped, have been very helpful in eliminating the flu, but COVID has spread regardless. Many politicians and advisors will admit, admit privately that the policy change compelling people to wear masks was not really about the spread of infection at all, but about the psychological effect that it would have. The real purpose is social control, to provide a constant reminder to maintain distance from other people, to maintain a state of anxiety that leaves people more likely to comply with restrictions that might otherwise have been forgotten. Once we understand the extent to which our minds have been messed with, we can begin to understand the reluctance felt by so many people to get on with living their lives. The person next to you on the bus is no longer a fellow human being, but a filthy vector of transmission. Hugging your grandchildren has been turned in the minds of many into a game of Russian roulette. Surely after 16 months of behavioral science being used to heighten fear and anxiety, the government should start to turn the dial the other way. Why not tell people that while a nasty new variant remains a statistical possibility, the vaccine seems pretty effective against all those that have appeared so far and likely to remain so. That seems redundant. I think he said that earlier. Why not explain to people that the usual evolution of viruses is to become easier to spread but less likely to kill? Most important of all, it is high time that the Department of Health started to publish figures separating out the numbers of hospital admissions where the patient really had been admitted because they were ill with the virus from those who brought in for other conditions but who subsequently tested positive for COVID, a much greater number. Finally, but the damage to schools, businesses, and family holidays will continue until the threat of being pinged, or pinged, excuse me, and self-isolation is completely ended. How far this Freedom Day looks like will be up to all of us and our determination to return to normal life. It is time for us now to start using our own judgment, but to get out there and start living as we did before. Let us take responsibility for our own appetite for risk, for our own lives once again. Government should treat us all as adults. Amen. And you know what I really love about that, um, besides the points that he was making? I love that you um, included, you know, for me, looking at things from an international perspective really uh, helps me get outside of the cultural limitations of the box that we live in. And I think in the last podcast that I listened that you recorded without me, um, you had mentioned something about you know, the freedom in this country, which I, which I agree, you know, but I also, for me, it is for people, freedom for all people. Um, and so I love that that comes from a more international perspective of like, this is, this is something that we're all, we're all dealing with in humanity. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, just maybe, you know, there are better ways to treat problems than taking a pharmaceutical product. Yeah. Right? You think? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like yeah. we have, we have the jab for everything. Mm -hmm. All or the pill. Food. Yeah. You and I had chicken pox when we were little, you and I had measles. We had those things, you know, and we we're probably better off for it. Yeah. You know, people that have high cholesterol, what's an internist do immediately? They want to put them on a stat. Right. They don't, you know, maybe they talk about exercise. Maybe they talk about weight loss, but do they emphasize it? Do they call them up every week and check on them and say, how's that program going? How are you doing? No, it's, it's easier to write for a stat. It's the same thing for depression or anxiety or attention deficit disorder, or any of these things, just write a pill, write a right. prescription, right? right. Mm -hmm. Even fertility and pregnancy, you know, oh, we need to do this x-ray, we need to do this, this uh, we need to do these blood works, you need to take this hormone, we need to take this inject, you know, not necessarily. And so this is the reason I'm bringing all this up is, it, I think it ties what's going on in the world with the ties with, with our upcoming guest, Ivy, Joeva, okay, because, you know, she uh, talks about a natural holistic lifestyle and she carries with her some ancient wisdom, much like you, Bliss. I mean, you, yeah. when I listen to you and when I listen to her, right, I feel better. And I think a lot of our listeners will feel the same. Just listening to you speak, even when you're feisty, okay. <laughs> <laughs> even, even, when you, even when you have that, you know, that new thing that you're going to do that you're... Um, uh, you're, you're, you're going to be unedited now and you're going to be more feisty about it because, uh, you know, I love that, but you still have this way about you when you speak that is, that is calming and, and Ivy, I feel has the same thing. So yeah. I, want to, I want to, uh, unless you have something to say, I want to get, quickly do her bio and then we'll get into the talk. Yeah. The only last thing I want to say is, and I'm sure that as the months go by, um, of me being on this exploration, you know, is thinking about this, getting back to the simplicity, which is really like where my belief system about birth stems from. There's the, the, there's the overlap that you and I have about medical freedom, you know, um, but it's, it's so interesting when you can kind of take yourself out and just really be able to tune into your own truth and slow down and, and remember that the consistency of all of this before all of our cultural perspectives of time and laws and all of that, there was nature. And, and when you can continue to go back to that and remember that we are part of that, um, things get a lot simpler. So that's, that's all I wanted to say. And I'm really sad that I didn't get to participate in your conversation with Ivy. I love Ivy. I was uh, visiting with her before she moved to Bali, um, but I am excited to listen along with all of our listeners to the conversation that you guys had. And I'm glad that you and I got a chance to catch up today. Yeah. And we only talked for about an hour and we barely scratched the surface. So I'm sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, sure. look, we're going to be doing this for a long time. Hopefully you and I, and yeah. uh, there will be a time we'll get, we'll get her back on. So, Hey, by um, the way, uh, Stuart yeah. and I are not married. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you want to explain that? Oh, Stu sent me a text um, that said that one of our listeners said something about you and your wife are so amazing or, or, or make so much sense or something. So um, we have a lot of love between us, but we are not married. <laughs> okay. And we'll leave it. At, we'll leave it at that. A little bit of a little bit of mystery is good for people. Okay, right. good. <laughs> so our guest, our guest is Ivy Jueva, and she's a doula, coach, and educator with a passion for illuminating the connection between personal wellness and the health of Mama Earth. 
She serves women and couples throughout the childbearing year, including fertility coaching, counseling for pregnancy loss of all kinds, holistic preparation for birth and postpartum recovery support. Ivory brings to her practice profound appreciation for the mind-body connection, and her approach includes the physical, emotional, sexual, and spiritual aspects of care. She has extensive experience supporting clients with a history of trauma, eating disorders, and body image issues, fairly common, also fertility challenges and prior loss. Ivy is a graduate of UC Berkeley and the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. She became a doula in 2009, and she serves clients across the United States and abroad, mostly right now, obviously, she's in Bali uh, by virtual meetings. But um, without further ado, uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation, which I like to call a conversation between a witch and a unicorn. <laughs> I love it. Ivy, welcome to the welcome to the, uh, the Birthing Instincts podcast. And uh, it's funny because uh, where I am, it's evening, and where you are, it's morning. Why don't you fill us in on where you are and uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you so much, Stu. It's so great to be here with you. I am here in Bali, Indonesia, as you can sort of see behind me, and I am a witch, <laughs> as you know. Yeah, I know. I know you are, you're officially, you, you make my cauldron stuff stuff actually seem appropriate because <laughs> I listen to you. First of all, you just, when I hear you speak on your Instagram um, TV videos and stuff, I, I, I just feel better hearing your voice because you have a way of talking that's so calm and so relaxing. And, you know, I have this loud booming voice, which you know, is is often I often get excitable, and so I love hearing um, your Instagram videos. And I brought you on today. Uh, well, first of all, why don't you tell people like a little bit how we met and like how you ended up in Indonesia and what it is that you you how you got into the wizardry world. <laughs> Oh wow! Well, those are three. Those are three whole worlds. You, three three different worlds here. But um, so I was a birth doula based in Los Angeles for over twelve years, and uh, so I, over the many years that I practiced in the birth room, I began to realize that my scope of practice as a doula was just way too small for what women actually need in these sacred rites of passage that come along with bringing a child into the world with you know, not only what women need, but what couples need, what families need. So I transitioned my practice really over the last seven years or so to support women and couples throughout the childbearing year. So I work with conscious conception, what I like to call conscious conception, mm -hmm. fertility coaching. We can talk more about what conscious conception means. I do pregnancy support, everything from nutrition to pelvic floor care to prepare holistically for birth. And then I, I also support for all kinds of pregnancy loss. I do counseling for miscarriage and abortion, um, stillbirth, late-term terminations. And I also offer postpartum recovery support. So when women find me, wherever they are along their journey, they have that support they need throughout. Because as you know, all too often, especially in the medical model of care, women have a baby and they get all this prenatal care. And then it's like, see ya. You're on your own. Um, and the same can be true even for a fertility journey. You know, a lot of these women that, that have fertility challenges will be going into the clinic. They'll be getting a lot of shots. They'll be getting tests done every week. And then they get pregnant. And it's kind of like, now what? Now, now where's, where's the care? 
Um, and throughout this process, the different layers of care that families need is really missing that emotional yeah. support. What you do is so important because the way we're trained in the medical model, pretty much everything you just said is not something we learn anything about. Yeah. Um, I can, you know, I remember, I think back to the way I took care of people in the first 20 years of my practice. <laughs> and then I want to slap myself sometimes because, you know, you, you deliver your baby and you go, uh, be vaginal delivery, you go home the next day and we'd see you in six weeks. Yeah. And we didn't have the kind of nurturing follow-up that the midwifery model has and, and certainly didn't think about nutrition and lactation. We didn't have any lectures on nutrition or lactation in medical school or residency. And it, it was all left. And we didn't, we didn't do anything to prep people to get pregnant. I mean, if somebody came in to see me uh, because she's planning to get pregnant, I wouldn't know what to tell them. Oh yeah, eat healthy, exercise, limit your stress, gets lots of sleep. I mean, that's the kind of the limit of what most doctors know about that thing. So maybe we could dive into that because I've listened to a couple of your Instagram talks. And by the way, when you do these, do you do these consults all virtually now since you're in Indonesia? So you yeah. set up times to talk to people. Did you do this by the way, before the pandemic started? I did, I was working okay. this way before the pandemic. I had an office in Los Angeles. I was a part of Loom, which was a pregnancy, parenting and reproductive empowerment center. Um, owned by Eric Achidi and Quinn Lundberg. It's a really cool center, really the first of its kind, this flagship studio in LA. So I had my office there and I saw local clients in person, but then I also worked um, with families all across the US remotely as well. So it was kind of a smooth transition for me last year when they stopped allowing us in hospitals. Um, it was like, I, it was nice because I already had the remote aspect of my practice established so, so let's let's be, before we get into the fertility aspect which is what i really want to get into for people that by the way i should ask you this question too do you recommend uh is this fertility workup that you do for people that are having problems with fertility or are you is this something that you recommend pretty much any woman should do to get prepare herself to get pregnant or is it are they are they one in the same it's such a great question because unfortunately so many of us don't even start thinking about fertility until we start thinking about having a child or worse, if we're having a problem yeah, having a child. That's when it starts. And what the science is showing now is that it's actually what determines egg quality, what determines the genetic expression of the child. So not the genes, but the epigenetic expression is the quality of the egg and sperm months before conception. So a woman's lifestyle months before she even has sex to conceive a child is what determines how that egg develops from the primordial pool and how that, that follicle develops and ultimately the genetic expression of the baby. So this is true for everything from certain diseases that may be expressed in the gene to just how healthy and vital that pregnancy is gonna be. Her likelihood of carrying the pregnancy to term as you know, is largely a functional of egg quality as, as well as hormonal balance. And hormonal balance isn't something we just pull out of a Cracker Jack box when we start trying to get pregnant, right? This is something that we want to nourish our cycle through all four phases of the cycle 
really months in advance, ideally, four to six months in advance. And I say a couple of years, especially, and this is something that a lot of families don't think about for subsequent pregnancies, when a mom has been pregnant and or given birth, a lot of times it's just assumed, well, we didn't have any fertility challenges for this baby, so we'll get pregnant again when we're ready. Mm-hmm. And as you know, Stu, a pregnancy and a birth requires pounds of minerals from your body. It actually takes pounds of minerals. And then, of course, if you're breastfeeding as well, all that nutrition is going to the baby. So if mom is depleted and she hasn't fully been able to nourish herself properly in in the pregnancy and postpartum and beyond, we find that it can take two years to replenish those nutrient stores. And that's if we're doing everything right. That's if we're having everything working to our advantage. Yeah, it's interesting to me because, you know, I look at things, my brain sees things in, in, a, in a whole, an overview. And I see that there are people who are, who are in very stressful situations who, and they get pregnant right away and there's no problem whatsoever. And then I see people who try really hard to be very, very healthy and, and they don't get pregnant. And so I, I'm always trying to, I, I know that it's a lot of it's a crapshoot and a lot of it's random, but what I, I think you, what you're, what you're saying is very valuable for not just because people who, you know, when you're, I mean, a lot of pregnancies are not planned, but when they're planned, it's best to be in the best shape and best situations that you can possibly be in. Yet, yet it, it's mystical and magical how it all works because there are people, you know, in war-torn countries who get pregnant and, and there's famine and even the last year and a half, I mean, the fertility rate maybe has fallen some according to statistics. I don't know if that's true or not, but because I don't trust anything that comes out of the CDC anymore. But um, during this pandemic, I mean, people have been living in fear and lockdown and social isolation, and and yet they're still conceiving. So what is, what is it is it is what you're saying? I mean, obviously, it's not it's not uh, concrete. It's not something that says if you don't do this, you're not going to get pregnant. So okay. what is it that that you do that? And how do we know that it improves outcomes? I mean, is there is there is it just common sense? Is it just uh, is there science behind what you're saying? That sort of thing. Can you can you clarify that a little bit for those of us who don't think like this? Yeah, this is this is very important to me, and this is a value that I think we share. That you know, there's science, and then there's science, right? <laughs> there's the science that we're told. There's the myths, really, the mythology that we're told of the way fertility works and the way birth works. And there's a lot of similarities there in the way this mythology is constructed. And then there's actual science, which is what you and I are practicing, which is like physiological reality, how the body works. And so when it comes to fertility, we do have this sense of mystery because it's like, how is it that a woman in a war-torn country can have a baby and, and get pregnant when my stress is just making it to work on time and I've been having fertility challenges for five years. So what we need to look is we need to look under the hood. We need to look a little deeper because there's different kinds of stress and this affects the body in different ways. And it all comes together to make the total picture of health. And when it comes to women, fertility is really a reflection and a barometer of your overall health and well-being. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't certain diseases or certain um, functional abnormalities in terms of anatomy. Like some, some women are born with, you know, a, a 
uh, block to the fallopian tube, for example. So there, there are things like that that may need to be addressed. Yeah, but these, are the, these are the medical things, I agree with you. These are the things like when I do a workup for fertility, which is obviously different than a workup for somebody that has repetitive or habitual miscarriage. That's a different problem. That's not a, that, that those people don't have a fertility issue. They have a uh, okay. keeping a pregnancy issue, but, but you know, it's sort of mechanical. You know, are your tubes open? Are you ovulating regular? What's your hormones? So I'll draw blood on you. I'll do a hysterocell pingogram, you know, that sort of thing. Maybe I'll send you to a therapist uh, to make sure that that's okay. And that's sort of what the medical world, that's basically the training that we get. We don't get any other training in that. And that's why I, I love so much what I do because I get exposed to all the, the lovely witches out there that, that know so much more, the nutrition people, the the um, the stress reduction, all these things that are not really emphasized in the medical model. The medical model, if you can't test it or, or uh, do an do a X-ray on it or something like that, they don't really know what to do because the model I practice doesn't have the time to sit and talk to somebody for an hour about these things and make adjustments. That's unless you're in the in in the if you get down in the weeds, unless you're in the cash business where you can charge whatever you want as some of uh, the people in, in my in the west side of Los Angeles do to spend an hour with people. But the average gynecologist, which is who people go to when they're having fertility problems, um, or even the reproductive endocrinologist, doesn't probably know what you're about to tell us. Well, I'm, I'm so excited to share this. And it's interesting because as you can hear and as you can see, but you know, for our listeners who aren't watching the video, you can hear the jungle behind me. You can hear these sounds. So if anybody's wondering what that is, that's nature speaking to us here. And, and that's really what I wanna share with you that starts to unlock this mystery around fertility. And as you know so brilliantly, Dr. Stu, around birth, because it's not a mystery. We are nature. This is scientific fact. We are going to be as healthy as our environment when it comes to our fertility. And so the same toxins, the same chemicals that are wreaking havoc on our ecosystem are destroying our fertile health. And this is science. This is the cutting edge of medicine today. When, when you know, microbiome is a big trend, it's on trend right now. Microbiome is the basis of health because we are outnumbered by the bacteria and fungi in our system, in our internal ecosystem, which is directly affected and influenced by our external ecosystem. This is the basis for our hormones, for our brain health, for our neurochemicals, for our immune system. And every phase of the menstrual cycle is modulated by the immune system. So there is an ongoing conversation between our endocrine system and our immune system and our neurological system. So this is a fancy way of saying that how we feel emotionally, how we feel physically, these are all interconnected. This is scientific fact. And we know this in the birth room. We know that when a woman is relaxed, when she feels safe, she births you know, pending a major medical problem like hypertension or diabetes or IUGR. Those are women that should be in the hospital, you know, ideally would be getting medical care for those conditions. But when it comes to our body's natural ability to reproduce, we want to have all these things working in our favor when it comes to nature. So to explain why someone in these dire conditions 
in a war-torn country may be able to have a baby, we would have to look at their whole profile in terms of the social support they're receiving from the, the people around them, their tribe. And you know, I, I use that word to, to indicate community, which is something that we really lack in our modern age. And this affects how a woman feels. This is gonna affect her hormones. This is gonna influence her fertility. And there's a myriad of other factors, of course, as well. So we really have to look at the big picture and not just one dimensionalize a woman, not dimensionalize fertility the way we sadly often do birth. Yeah, uh, the medical model doesn't do that. The medical model is very compartmentalized. Like you say, the, when you talk about the microbiome, it's something that we talk about, Bliss and I talk about all the time, about, um, if you know when babies are born vaginally, uh, they're done skin to skin, that sort of thing. Their gut is colonized with the right bacteria. They have far less problems later on in life with autoimmune disorders or or childhood asthma, those sorts of things. When your gut, eighty to ninety percent of your immune system comes from your gut and from the bacterial flora that you have in your gut. So, if you take say you were because it, most of my listeners are in are in Western countries. There's a lot of lot going on. We actually are we, we're lucky to live in a country that has at least, you know, good water, you know, clean air. I mean, obviously there are food toxins and things like that. But what would you suggest? How would you, how would you approach a couple who comes to you and says, you know, we're thinking about getting pregnant. Uh, my husband works uh, 90 hours a week, and he you know he plays racquetball all day, you know, and all that stuff, and and I. Um, you know, and I, and I have this real stressful job and I'm like, what, what do you tell people? And, uh, and we eat on the go and my husband eats too much fast food. And, and uh, how, how would, how do you bring people back to the, to earth? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's really important to meet people where we're at. Right. And we definitely do that when we're working with pregnant women and families is like, we're not going to bombard them <laughs> with everything we know right away because that gets overwhelming and has the opposite effect. So I like to take a really holistic inventory of what are we working with? What is the landscape of this woman's life? What's the landscape looking like in the relationship and their overall health as individuals as well? And so the, the point of intervention is really going to be unique to each woman and each family. Um, in the situation you just described where dad is working 90 hours and there's fast food going on, what is able to be sustained in a male body is also often very different than what is supportive of a woman's overall hormonal balance, right? So men, men's bodies are actually built for war. You guys are kind of more able to withstand famine. That's why the whole intermittent fasting trend is kind of okay for a lot of male bodies. You're not gonna have the same problem with hormones that a woman would have doing a lot of intermittent fasting. And unfortunately, most of the medical studies that we have access to today have been done on men. So they're male subjects. It's, it's science by men for men, and it doesn't necessarily apply to female hormonal health. Um, so I might not need to modify his work schedule because for a man, and this is something that I imagine you've seen two doctors do in working with couples, a lot of times when it comes to, especially a first time baby, in a man's mind, their, their top priority, what's their biggest fear? Oh my God, am I gonna be able to provide for this child, right? So it may be that working that 90 hour week, paradoxically, 
is making him less stressed emotionally because he feels like he's doing something. He feels like he's being proactive. And it may turn out that his testosterone levels are doing a-okay because he's on purpose. He's on his mission. He's rocking his stuff. He's having great sex because he's coming home and his libido's online and he's feeling like the man, right? So this could actually be a benefit to the relationship. Now we have to look deeper and ask, okay, how's she feel about that? Are they having enough time together as a couple so that she feels safe and she's able to relax into her feminine fertile flow? And when it comes to fast food, this is obviously not optimal nutrition, but we also don't want to add stress of pressuring people, you know, to, to cook 21 meals a week if that's just not in their current lifestyle. So we might say like, can we migrate some of these meals towards something that would be more nourishing? And how can we do that in a way that's gonna be fun and easy and maybe have you spending meal times together as a couple? Um, because what I like to say is I wanna bring the sexy back into fertility, you know? And that's not a knock on artificial reproductive technologies. Like if, if we need that, we need that. And I, I trust people to know their medicine, but everything that we're talking about today is only gonna help improve those outcomes. Because what people often don't talk about is that IVF is only effective 30% of the time. Those are not great odds. And these are 10, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a pop here with a lot of you know, emotional roller coaster to go along with it. So if we can bring the pleasure back into this process, I mean, it's just amazing to me that we've lost sight of the fact that to have a baby is a sexual experience. We've, we've taken that out of it. We've, we've stopped realizing like, you actually have to have sex to have a baby. You still wanna be bringing this fertile, sensual flow into it because it's gonna boost your hormones. It's gonna boost um, everything biologically that goes into making this yeah, I mean, I can't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the thing is, what we talk about all the time on the podcast is that nature has a design. And every time we muck with it, we, we're doing, we're screwing something up and there's ripple effects that go down line. And nature designed couples to get pregnant through the act of making love. And when you are doing it because, you know, you're looking at your watch and honey, it's time, we, we, you know, it's, it's that time of the month, we've got to do it. And and or, um, you know, things aren't good between the couple or uh, when, you, when you take away the, or, or you're doing it in a dish or, or you're doing that sort of thing. I mean, does it change the outcome? Does it change the byproduct? Does it change the quality of the, of the um, fertilized egg? I mean, um, I got to believe that when, when uh, egg is fertilized and it's being bathed in oxytocin and dopamine, that it's probably better for the egg than... If, if it's bathed in stress hormones. Yeah, there's no question. And we don't have right now long-term studies with this generation of children that, that many, many of which are being conceived through ART. But, but the studies that we do have are showing that are problems later on. So right now, when we consider it a success, we're only looking at, is that pregnancy going to term? Are we having a live baby? We're not actually looking at what are some of the epide- epidemics that we're seeing in these babies and then children in terms of their neurological health, in terms of their immune health. Um, and so again, this, this isn't to knock that approach because thank God we have these techniques for families that need them and, and they can have their child and it's a miracle. 
Um, and the more we can have working in our favor, the healthier the pregnancy, the healthier the healthier the mother, and the healthier the child is ultimately. Yeah, I mean, there's so many factors that go into it, but you're right. We are seeing rises in autoimmune disorders. We're seeing rises in autism. We're seeing, you know, rises in eczema and other things that that we see. And and again, I don't know that there's any way to uh, isolate that or do a study. And I don't even think that you actually need a study because one of my tenants that I've always had uh, in the latter years of my career is that either a study proves what common sense would dictate or the study is wrong. And so um, common sense would dictate that conceiving at a time when you're, you're, you're healthy, you're happy, your nutrition is good, those sort of things makes perfect sense because that's what nature would have wanted. Um, so to, you don't, I don't think that you, you need a study, nor would I ever probably believe a study because I don't know how you could isolate all, all the factors to determine one thing or another thing is, is, is crucial. It just makes sense to me to, to what you're saying and the things that you are offering just makes so much sense. But I think in people's busy lives and certainly in the medical model, it's not something that, that really enters into the, like, as I said earlier, it doesn't enter into the workup. I mean, right. here, here, sir, you go get a semen analysis here. You go get this x-ray of your tubes and then come back. We'll talk about that. And then if that's not working, we'll check your cervical mucus. We'll do a, a postcoital test. Like, yeah, have sex at eight o'clock in the morning and be in my office at nine and that sort of thing. And and, and this is so, this is, it's, it's so scientific and so compartmentalized and so unemotional. And I just don't think that, that I think we're, my profession is really missing something. And you, um, you have, you're scratching the, the surface and bring and bringing it in. And that's again, why I want people to hear um, all that you're saying about this and then go on and talk about you know, nutritional things, and also talk about the fertility things that we talked about before we went on, um, before we went live. So tell us, just, just tell us what you feel. Well, I love what you're saying about common sense, because we've kind of missed the forest for the trees in, in the field of pregnancy and birth and fertility, as you know. And what common sense tells us is that each leg of the journey prepares you and foreshadows the next right? It's a prelude. So the way we become pregnant, our, our health in that period that goes into determining our fertility is reflected in the health of the pregnancy, both physically and the experience of pregnancy emotionally, right? Because the way we feel physically affects how a woman feels and vice versa. This is our, our neurochemicals influence our endocrine system. So when we're stressed, when and, and emotional stress can span a lot of different factors as well, this is gonna affect how we physically feel in our pregnancy, how we physically birth and how we feel postpartum. So we do have studies that are linking perinatal mood and anxiety disorders like postpartum depression with the subjective quality of the woman's experience of her labor and birth. So we can see how each phase kind of leads to the next. And what I, Bliss actually talks about this. Um, I love how she says that if you can become pregnant, that is a reflection of health. You can therefore have a healthy birth. And how often are we told by medical doctors, you're going to have a problem in birth because your hips are too narrow or because there's too much amniotic fluid or there's not enough or this, that, and the other thing, the baby's too big. And it's like, hello, that she's been 
carrying this baby, growing this baby for 10 months, what is the logical conclusion of that from, from just common sense? And so this same I see in the fertility world, if I had a dollar for every woman that has been told, you're not gonna be able to get pregnant because this, that, and the other reason, because of PCOS, because you're too overweight, because there's a, mil a myriad of reasons that we hear, you know, your, um, your AMH is too low. And we were told for years that if your AMH is low, it can't improve. You can't get pregnant. We were told that. we were told that FSH could improve, but AMH cannot. Now we're seeing, lo and behold, women's AMH levels are improving with lifestyles. You and I would be and, very. Oh, go ahead. And 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 that was explained away for years as well. It was like, well, those are different labs. They're different assays. You're going to get different results based on that. No, you can go to the same lab with the same assay, and over the course of just a few months we're seeing these changes in AMHLs. So these are just theories that are developing. But, but when we go back to what makes logical sense, does that make logical sense that a woman can't improve her egg quality, that she can't improve the number of follicles advancing from the primordial pool towards ovulation? It doesn't make logical sense if we're born with thousands of eggs. And it yeah, takes- we are. We're, we, yeah, okay? you're, born, you're born with all the eggs you'll ever have, but. But as far as improving quality, that makes perfect sense to me. And what you, what you said was so funny. I mean, it, you sounded like me there for a minute when you said if I had a dollar for every time I heard something stupid. Because um, just this morning in the office, I had a woman who came in. She's um, 10 weeks pregnant with twins. And, and she had a, a seven and a half week ultrasound with her OB. And she came in to see me for a consult uh, because the OB said to her at seven and a half weeks when he found out she has twins that, well, we'll be scheduling your C-section at 37 weeks. So he's telling her this at, at seven weeks pregnant, that that's the plan. And right. yeah, so yeah, there, there'd be another dollar in the piggy bank for sure. So yeah, so how do, how, how does, because we, you know, we have limited time, you and I together today. I mean, we, you know, we've got 45 minutes or something. So how, because I, again, I could listen to what you have to say, because as I said, not only what you have to say is very important, but how it comes out of you just makes me feel good. So it's really good. So you're probably really, really good at, for what you do for couples just to listening to you. But what would you say, I mean, as far as so simple things that, again, a little more concrete about nutrition, what should people be doing? Um, and then what do you tell the couple that comes to you that says, you know, we've had problems and we can't be conceived. We've been trying for six months or we've been trying for nine months and nothing's happening and I'm having regular cycles and my husband's sperm has been checked out and everything like just give us a, I, you know, lead us down that path for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think what we're seeing too often in the fertility world is couples, women going from zero to 60, where they decide, you know, after being on birth control for a decade and not really thinking much about their period or their cycle or their overall fertility, now I want to get pregnant. And so they might start trying to get pregnant. And if it doesn't happen in the first few months, now we're running off to the fertility clinic where unfortunately too often women are being put on kind of a conveyor belt of tests. And there's a whole world in between going to those interventions and, and what you can actually do naturally to boost your fertility. And we're gonna talk about just touching on each of those areas. But I just think it's really important to remember to, to just as, a, as an overall kind of paradigm shift, bring that power back into our hands because it's, 
um, it's just a lie that there's nothing we can do. And that this is just, if you're having trouble, you must have a problem. There's a lot that we can do. And the other thing that, that we need to remember is that it takes two to tango when it comes to fertility and male fertile health is 50% of the equation. And for too long, that's been ignored because we've, we've assumed that if there's a fertility challenge, it's the woman's problem. And especially today, scientific studies are showing that worldwide sperm counts are declining. So if the reason for this is not just that we're waiting longer to have children. Yes, both maternal and paternal age on average is increasing when, when it comes to you know, conceiving a child, but it's also a, an environmental crisis that we're dealing with when it comes to the xenoestrogens, the endocrine disruptors that we are bombarded with in our everyday life. A woman today is exposed to the same amount of toxic chemicals in one month that her grandmother's generation was exposed to in her entire lifetime. And these are known endocrine disruptors. So these are things like plastics. These are things like micro beads, which are actually microplastics. They're, they're tiny particles in everything from shampoo to body wash to toothpaste. So switching over to eco-friendly forms of your cleaning products, of your body care products, um, what you drink your coffee in, is going to directly support your fertility. What's eco-friendly is fertility-friendly. So that's just one area. Go ahead, you look like that. I was gonna say, I've heard it related a little bit to also like pesticides and uh, certain certain GMOs and certain other things, plus non-ionizing radiation. The fact that pretty much every person on the planet carries a uh, a non-ionizing radiation device in their back pocket as they walk around all day long. And yeah. I don't know if that has something to do with it too, but it seems like that would make sense to me as well. And at some point we've got to realize and wake up that, that this, is not, this is not a good trend that we're going through because um, one of the things that we're taught about the term is uh, the ability to conceive in any given cycle is the term for that is fecundity. And the fecundity of a, of a rabbit is 99%. It means every time they ovulate, they get pregnant, okay? But the fecundity of a human being, even 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 when they're 20 years old and you know in college, is only about 20, a little bit over 20% per cycle. And let's use 20% because it makes easy math. And a lot of people like when I do this sort of thing. So if you have 100 college women having unprotected sex in a given month, 20 are going to get pregnant, and um, 80 are not going to be pregnant after the first month. After the second month, 16 remaining of the 80 will be pregnant. And so you'll have 36 pregnant and 64 not pregnant. And after another uh, three months, you'll have more than about 47 pregnant and 53 not pregnant. And so after three months of of trying to conceive, it's really normal for more than half the women not to conceive. That's normal human reproduction. And if you go six months, you're talking about still over 25% of women who have nothing wrong with them statistically will not conceive. And then of course you take the women that who did conceive and about a third of them are going to miscarry early on. And then you have to throw them back into the, the mix. You can see that we aren't rabbits or gerbils. Uh, we're not, uh, we're not, we're a successful species in survival. So we're not very successful when we reproduce. And then when you throw all these other things that you were just talking about on top of it, um, it's, you know, it's, it makes it, it makes it worse. So one of the things that, that I've always talked about because it's only the way I've learned is to, to be very supportive and reassuring to people when they, and they call you and say, you know, we've been trying for two months and we haven't got pregnant. But all I tell them is that's normal. 
but I don't tell them the things that you're probably about to say because I didn't, I was unaware of these things. Like you just even talked about um, the environmental things, but also um, clearly which foods to eat, what, you know, how to, how to adjust your lifestyle. These are not things that we would even say because we would just say, well, statistically speaking, this is perfectly normal. And, yeah. you know, that may be reassuring to some point, but it's not exactly what they want to hear. Yeah, people want to have the tools to, to address their health proactively, absolutely. And um, you brought up pesticides, which is really important because that goes along in, in what one, this is one branch of the, of the big picture, which I call the toxin exposure in the inventory. So that includes toxins that go on our body. We talked about when it comes to body care in our body, which is in our food and pesticides, GMO foods is a part of that. And then around our body, when it comes to our environment, what are we cleaning with? What's the quality of the air we're breathing? And when it comes to nutrition, which is another kind of major prong of the journey here, people are thinking about the wrong thing. So many people are concerned about nutrition today and we're thinking, you know, should we, should, is this a good food? Is that a bad food? How much carb should I be having? How much fat should I be having? One of the problems is, you know, restricting certain macronutrients, whether it's carbs or fat, that's not a good idea for women. But we also want to look at what I say, what, where, and how, and when our food is grown. So not just what you're eating, but when, where, and how. So is the food you're eating seasonal? Is it in season? Because if it's not in season, it's not going to be grown locally, which means it's going to be being shipped from miles away, picked unripe, and it's not going to have the same nutrient quality. And actually, also how your food is grown. Is your food being sprayed with pesticides? Is it a bunch of chemical inputs into the soil? Or is it grown in a regenerative way? That's going to be nutrient-rich soil and nutrient-rich soil that has a healthy microbiome of the soil is going to be nutrient-rich for your body and support the microbiome of your body. So uh, those are, go ahead. How does one know when one says, a package says organic on it or a package says that? I mean, how, how do you know that what you're, I mean, it, it, again, do you just have to trust it? Because, I mean, I mean, certain parts of the world may have, may have better uh, regulation than other parts of the world, but I don't even know because I always, I always envision that there's this organic farm over here and they're doing everything exactly right. And two miles away is a farm that's using Roundup and everything else. And the insects don't know boundaries. <laughs> Right. So, the same bees and bugs that, that are feeding over there go over there. So is there any way to know anymore that what yeah. you're doing is actually good for you? Well, the insects aren't the problem. The problem is that pesticides don't know boundaries. So that's a big problem we're seeing in agriculture is this runoff when it comes to, you know, we, we had that in Los Angeles. I had so many women when I was living in Los Angeles having these allergies. It wasn't allergens in the air it was the, these toxic pesticide residue that was being swept over LA uh, so um yeah I mean I think we, again we, we do what we can do right so if you can afford organic that's usually good there there are definitely problems with the organic farming industry and and there's some shady shit that goes on for sure but you know the best thing is if you have a local farmer's market and you can go and get to know your farmers talk to them ask what they're using to control pesticides, ask what they're using as fertilizer. Um, so if, if a farm can't afford the organic certification, it may be the case that it's still sustainably grown 
even better if they're using regenerative practices because that actually helps put nutrients back into the soil, draw carbon out of the atmosphere into the soil. Um, so there's a lot that we can do nutritionally. All that's to say there's a lot we can do nutritionally. And so just like we were talking about with the toxin exposure inventory, that an eco-friendly body care product or an eco-friendly cleaning product is going to be a fertility-friendly product. The same is true for our diet. So when we're eating food that's grown in a way that's healthy for the environment, that's going to be healthy for our bodies. And migrating our diet to being ecologically responsible and ecologically sustainable there's a reason why that is going to protect the next generation. It's not just going to protect them in terms of the planet we give them. It's going to actually protect their health because what nourishes our fertile health is actually creating the most healthy child when you do conceive as well. So those are two of the big areas, nutrition, looking at our toxin exposure. But I want to back up because even before we get to all that, what we need to look at is the number one fertility killer which is stress. And like we talked about, stress is multi-pronged. We can't just look at someone on the surface and say she's stressed or she's not stressed because there's many different nuances and facets to this that determine the overall effect on fertility. So there's physical stress, there's emotional stress, there's mental stress, there's relational stress, there's social stress, sociologic stress, which we're seeing when it comes to the pandemic. We're seeing this you know, social event, this global political experience that the collective is having and how that's influencing our own emotional and physical experiences of our bodies and our cycles. And so when it comes to physical stresses, the four main stressors that I work with when I am first meeting a couple is let's look at your quality of sleep because that is just a foundation the body is gonna have major physical stress if sleep is not optimal. And most of us are not getting optimal sleep when it comes to, right? <laughs> I'm raising my hand to that. Yeah, so we wanna look at that. We wanna look at blood sugar. So if we are skipping meals, if we're eating in a way that's not balancing our hormones as women, we cannot just eat the way our partners eat. Cause like I said, men have a little bit more of a window to play with in terms of not eating for hours or not getting enough carbohydrates. Men can, you know, go into ketosis and it's not necessarily going to throw off their testosterone production. Not the same for women. So we want to look at blood sugar. We also want to look at exercise. So exercise is a big topic because again, the studies are being done on men. And more is not better when it comes to exercise for women. So yes, we do wanna be moving our bodies. We do wanna be physically active in a way that supports our overall health, but we have to look at how this is affecting our cycle and the fact that our body movement changes, change, our body movement needs change in the different phases of the cycle, just like our nutritional needs change in different phases of the cycle. And when we're going off these generic exercise and nutrition recommendations, a lot of times, we miss that. So our hydration levels, whenever we're even minorly dehydrated, that is a physical stress on the body. Our body's going to produce more cortisol. And as you know, when we have elevated levels of cortisol, it interferes with progesterone because progesterone and cortisol compete for this mother hormone, pregnenolone, which releases DHEA. And when, when there's more cortisol being produced, we don't have as much to produce the progesterone we need, which influences ovulation in the next cycle, 
and also protect, protects the luteal phase if a woman does get pregnant to, to maintain that pregnancy. So how does hydrate? How does hydration? Because um, what you're talking about is is the is the, is the steroid pathway where they're they're stealing the precursors to make cortisol because your body will prioritize cortisol for stress over your your female hormones, even not even just progesterone, but all your other female hormones, including androgens and um, and estrogen. But um, how does hydration help that? So it's our body doesn't know the difference between if we're going into a period where we're not gonna have access to water for days and days, and if we're just kind of chronically, minorly dehydrated throughout the course of the day. So unfortunately for a lot of us, the quality of our water is not so great, especially if we're drinking tap water or if we're drinking bottled water, then we have another problem because there's plastics, plastics yeah. that's getting into our water. So that's a, that's an endocrine disruptor. I have to stop that. I, I, I drink a lot of water during the day, but I, I, and I haven't, and not only do I drink water out of plastic, but I, but they often sit in my car where the sun beats down on them. And apparently that's not good for it either. So I, I, I have to, you know, although I'm not terribly worried about my sperm quality anymore, I, I, <laughs> I, I still, uh, I still have to stop that because I know that that's not a good idea. And I, and I have all these big cans that people buy me, these, these water bottles, and I have like six of them sitting in my kitchen and I, and I don't use them. I've got to start using them. You know, yeah. So this is just to say there's a lot of different forms of physical stress that we often don't think about. You know, when we think whether we're stressed or not, we think about whether we think we're stressed or not, but the body might be telling a very different story. And of course, when it comes to emotional health, that's a whole nother topic because having emotions, even having a big, a big emotional events that, you know, going through a period of grief, you may still be able to conceive if your relationship with your emotions is a healthy one. So this is something that I actually just learned, Dr. Stu, when we have a feeling, when we have an emotional feeling, what happens is it triggers the amygdala to release hormones. And that hormonal cascade becomes our experience of the feeling. It's a physiological experience that's happening. And it actually lasts only 90 seconds. That's it. Which I thought was so incredible because most of us experience emotions as these big things that go on forever. But what's actually happening in that is our, our, we're experiencing the physiological experience and then our brains are telling a story about that, which is reigniting that cascade. So I, I found that so fascinating because it's the same thing that we see in labor, right? An actual labor wave, an actual contraction is not longer than 90 seconds. But when we're seeing women suffer in labor, we're having fear that's causing tension in the body. We're not able to relax. We're not able to let go and, and let the last one go and be ready for the next one, right? So th this is, again, what I say when, when, when we're preparing our bodies to conceive, when we're preparing everything we do to prepare for that process physically and emotionally, is actually preparing us for the same tools we need to navigate the labor process healthfully. Yeah, and I would add, I would add to what you said about um, first of all, having good endorphins and and dopamine and serotonin being put out means that you you know happiness is really important. And we live in a world now where if you pay attention to anything that's going on in life, it's pretty easy to get stressed and bring you down. And it's not necessarily right to ignore it either. Living by the ostrich theory of life sucks and you shouldn't probably do that either but having a good social network um, not paying attention to too much um, things that bring you down like 
if you don't watch scary movies, don't, you know, don't watch too much news, um, talk to, you know, have social interactions because social interactions, we put out um, the hormones that make us feel good. And you know what somebody said to me the other day? She said, I don't think I've had a belly laugh in, in a decade. Yeah. And it's hard to create your own belly laughs. But sometimes, but we have them sometimes, uh, you know, me and my, my students or whatever, we just, sometimes we just crack ourselves up and you feel really good when you just have, when you just laugh. Absolutely. So, you know, if you, if you don't, if you can't figure out a way to make yourself laugh, watch a comedy program, watch, uh, watch some live comedy, do something to make yourself happy and laugh and especially do it with somebody that you care about and love, because then you're going to really be spilling into the, the, uh, the oxytocin and the other things that you want to bathe your future embryos and, and your body in, because that's the thing that's the bonding hormone. It's your love hormone. And that's why we think labor is so important because babies are experiencing mother's oxytocin surges, like you said, every three minutes or so. Um, and uh, babies that are born by electively scheduled C-section who never get to choose their date of birth or never get to trigger labor don't have that. And we are seeing some consequences. You know, it's not universal and it's not something that's highly predictable, but certainly we see consequences in things like potentially autism or potentially um, uh, uh, learning disabilities, ADHD, that sort of thing in babies that you, you'll see a higher percentage in babies that were born by scheduled C-section. This is something that can be studied, although again, it's multifactorial because you don't know about their social situations in their family and how that went. but you know, you can, you can look at that and you can do prospective studies and see, and I don't know, I, I'm sure I'm hoping it's being done, but I don't know that anybody is doing it. And I don't know that anybody will care when it comes out because they're not going to change the medical model that they're practicing by. And they're not going to say, oh, we're not going to do electively scheduled C-section anymore because a certain higher percentage of, of babies will have problems later on because ultimately the medical model doesn't care about what happens to babies down the road. All they care about, and I've said this over and over again, is that baby in the bassinet crying and breathing, and then their job is done. Yeah. How it got there doesn't matter. And what happens to the mother afterwards or in future pregnancies doesn't matter. And, and I'm it's not saying that to be harsh, and I'm not picking on individual practitioners. I'm saying that's the medical model or the system that we all practice in. Um, and that's something that's really got to change as well. So right. And and what's good for the mother is good for the child. Like you're saying, you that I think that's something uh, that is right. It's, it's, yes. it's so obvious to us, but but we we lose that. And just that this what, what's good for our physical health is good for our emotional health, not separate things. So when like you're saying, when it comes to that social support that benefits labor and the baby, that social support having that is going to help you in your postpartum phase as well. Right, the, the number one buffer for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders is social support. So when we walk back and we see how that affects fertility, it's not just for the benefit of conceiving the baby, it's for the benefit of that mother throughout that whole cycle after yes. the birth. Yes, bravo, bingo, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, I, and I wanna go back to what you said also about laughing because you know, we see that in birth when a woman has a good belly laugh that helps release the pelvic floor, that helps everything open up. And that's so important. And, you know, that that 
aspect of focusing on the positive and noticing how that affects the way we feel. And I also think a part of being positive is not ignoring quote unquote negative emotions and allowing ourselves to have that full spectrum of emotion. Because like we see in birth, sometimes if a woman is repressing something, she might not even know she's repressing. She might be really pissed off, but she's trying to be the good girl and she's trying to, you know, maybe people please and be like she, you know, the, the way she thinks she's supposed to be. And yeah. then I've had the experience, I'm sure you have too, Dr. Stu, where someone just like lets it out and lets it rip their roar, their, you know, F you, whatever needs to come out. And then labor comes if it was stalled. And so this is also part of how our emotional health affects our fertility. Are we actually feeling our feelings? Or are we in more of a stress state, which is a, a freeze state? It can be a freeze state. We say fight, flight, or freeze, or tend and befriend. So a, a lot of the times the good girls are the ones that have a hard time in birth and fertility as well. The type A, the overachieving, we're feeling like we have to control ourselves too much and not allowing ourselves to have a good cry, which actually from a hormonal perspective is as important as a good belly laugh because cortisol is released from the body in our tears. So having that full release, allowing anger to express if it needs to in a responsible way, not at somebody, but really letting it move through your body is going to let your hormones flow properly. When our emotions are flowing, our hormones are flowing, even if they're so-called negative emotions. Yeah. You know, that's really, it's really, as you talk, I think about like it's only natural to think about your own life and your and your own history when you were saying that, and I think about when I was when I was growing up, um, or whatever I was I was raised in a situation where I was supposed to be um, the caretaker. That was sort of who I was, and so my emotions were secondary to the to the people around me, and and that's probably part of the reason I ended up in this profession to begin with, was because I fe I felt like my, uh, you know I didn't have to do any self-reflection. I didn't have to, I, uh, you know, my fears of intimacy and stuff were, were, were irrelevant because um, my job was to take care of everybody else's emotions. And only when at sometimes you reach rock bottom or you, you, you have this epiphany in your life and you realize that, you know, it's okay to have, to express yourself and stuff. And now I am far more emotional. I can't even read some things that I write on the podcast without sort of choking up and breaking down. And when I watch movies, I cry. You know, I'm at, I'm at a Pixar movie with my daughter and my daughter looks over me. She goes, yeah, are you crying? And I go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I'm, I'm interested in talking to you about this stuff because I don't know enough and I don't even, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to do these things anymore. So if a couple comes to me with habitual miscarriage, I can do the initial workup. Or if a couple comes to me that's infertile, I can do the initial medical part of it, but I don't even pretend to be an expert anymore at these people. And I am so comfortable in my own skin that I don't, I don't have any problem referring people out to, to an, an expert. You know, that's the thing. That's the thing that drives me crazy, like with, with breech birth, is, is that if you're not an expert at breech birth, you're an obstetrician, you're calling yourself an obstetrician, you don't know how to do breech birth, rather than bad-mouthing it, and having your ego stroked, why don't you just say, listen, I don't know how to do that. I was, I'm stupid for not learning, but there are people in town that know how to do it, but there's so many people won't do that. I have, I, I, I'm so comfortable doing what I'm doing now. I've been doing it for so long. And even though it's rare and unique what I do, 
um, that I know when something's outside my expertise. I'm not afraid to say it because I'm, I know that I'm well-respected for what I do. I don't have to keep proving myself all the time. But so many yeah. of my colleagues have to do that. Yeah, and it's really sad because it's, it's part of the structure. It's part of the structure where, I don't know if you're the one who told me this, that the way medicine developed was actually according to a military chain of command, which is why we say things like doctor's orders, right? And, and so we've really outsourced authority and we have this role with medical personnel as a role of authority, as opposed to the way it was for thousands of years in cultures all over the world, where the healers, it was a collaborative role, you know, patient heal thyself, so to speak. And so when we outsource our authority, there's this dual dynamic where the quote unquote patient, or I like to say client, feels like the medical provider has an authority and they're, they have the ultimate answers. We're going to this person for answers. But then when it comes to the provider, they also feel like it's their responsibility as the authority figure to know things that maybe they don't even know. And so a lot of that's, that's the way a lot of these myths are kind of manufactured. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, uh... We, we've never seen a greater example of it than we see right now when you see these pundits on television telling us about the vaccine or not the vaccine or mask or not mask. They, they, don't, they, they don't know anything, but they act like they know everything. And why can't they just say, you know, I don't know that because there isn't enough information right now. It's like when, when, when somebody says, maybe I said this to you, I, I say this so often, but when somebody says that reach birth at home is dangerous, I want to look at them and I want to go, you're lying because there's no data. How do you know? Right. You're just projecting your own anxieties and your own fears into the world of home birth, which you don't understand and therefore calling it a name so that makes you feel better. Well, I think that's so important what you're saying because you're speaking to our relationship as a culture and as individuals, but our relationship to the unknown. And when our relationship to the unknown is fear, we're going to make up information and grab at information to try to compensate for something that's actually an unknown and actually a mystery. And when it comes to fertility, there is an unavoidable component of mystery and the unknown. Like you said, with, with any given cycle, only a certain percentage in perfect fertile health will conceive in that cycle. How do you make sense of that? It's a mystery, yeah. right? So you can't superimpose data and information and, and reach for tests and all of this to compensate for that. It's, it's really dropping deeper. And, and the ability to surrender comes from a, a different relationship to the unknown that's one of trust, one of trust and surrender. And this is the aspect of the sacred that I also talk about. So I like to say I'm bringing the sexy back into fertility and also bringing the sacred back. Because however you conceive of the divine, if you believe in souls or if you believe in a greater power or you just want to say universal, you know, the natural laws of the universe, however you conceive of that is going to support your fertility, that ability to surrender and trust the same way we need that ability to surrender and trust the mysteries and the unknowns of the birth process. Yeah, and unfortunately, we live in a world right now where uh, people want answers and they want them immediately and they want them now and they want them concrete. And when people start to talk like you just did about the sacred, 
um, you lose you lose a lot of people because they 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 don't believe in that anymore. They they, they sort of they sort of don't believe in anything anymore. And it's it's or the, which is the the famous saying is those that don't believe in God or or the sacred. It's not that they believe in nothing; it's they'll believe in anything, and they'll mm. and so they'll find some other belief to to guide them. And it could be any any sort of one of the isms, like it could be environmentalism or feminism or whatever ism that they want to you know whatever cause they find as being their their goal. When when ultimately, I think it's so important, and you live such a much more fulfilling life when you are surrounded surrounding yourself with like-minded people and friends and um, happiness and um, like you said laughter and then and then the four things of like what you say they were uh, sleep blood sugar uh, hydration and exercise <laughs> all four of those and you and you make a routine that that keeps you happy um, you know, and people have to realize that life goes on and you get older. And when I look in the mirror at myself now, I, my mind sees my 25-year-old self and my eyes see my 65-year-old self. And it's like, what happened? I mean, but, you know, there, there are all these old sayings that life begins at, you know, at 60 or life begins whenever. And, you know, people say that you're just saying that to make yourself feel better. But you know what? It's true. The, the, the wisdom that you've acquired over the years, you can use it wisely or you can use it poorly. And I, I think the wisdom that you have, and, and I, I quoted in, in a previous podcast a while back, this 22-year-old um, wise beyond her years woman who, who did a breech birth in her own backyard by herself before any of us got there. Um, and the wisdom that she had was, was something that you don't see in most 22, 23 year olds. Yeah. She has and, and talking about Steve, that's our birthright. That kind of wisdom is our birthright. That's the wisdom of our bodies. That's our own embodied wisdom as women. And so when you say Bliss and I are witches, we're all witches. We just haven't discovered that. And and I think you know, hijacking of our own authority, our own authority of our own bodies, our own body sovereignty is is part of what's created that divide in our minds yeah and and i i want to go back to what you said about um how people are struggling with the unknown how how people will really resist this surrender and and um i forget how you put it but you said you know you'll kind of lose a lot of people when you start talking about the sacred because it's scary right it is scary and so i want to just acknowledge that that when it comes to birth, when it comes to fertility, we do want answers and that's okay. But the reality is when, when the true answer is cause unknown, when it comes to something like a miscarriage, for example, the most mm -hmm. common cause is we just don't know. And that's yep. the truth. What the, the question is really what allows us to surrender? What allows us to trust? And what I've experienced in my many years in the birth room is that what Part of that is just an overall willingness, but part of it is also how safe someone feels. What does someone need to feel safe? What can they control, right? So when it comes to birth, we look at, okay, who's on your care team? What's in your environment? What kind of lighting do you want? What kind of sound do you want? What are all these pieces? 
And then of course, how you prepare your body. And when it comes to fertility, knowing that there are things that are within your power to control, the things that we know for a fact, for physiological fact, influence your fertility, like sleep, like nutrition, like toxic exposure, um, you know, all of these various elements that we talked about today. If you, if you can focus on what you do know, then that can really help release the need to have answers for things to which there just are no answers because there is a mystery there. There's a sacred mystery there, I like to say. Yeah, and, I, and everybody loves a good mystery and everybody, you know, we don't, we don't need, if, if we're constantly searching for answers, we're, never, we're, we're missing everything that's going by. We're missing, we're missing life if we're, if we're doing that. And, and you, right, so, many of what, so much of what we do in our lives is inexplicable and there are no answers. And uh, this is one of the things that I talk about with my clients when they come in, if they've had a miscarriage or, or if their baby has some anomaly or something that's really tr sad or tragic, is that I, I, uh, one of the things I tell them for sure that this is not possibly caused by anything that you did by act of omission or commission, all right? This is just, a, it's, it's, it's a random thing that happens. Um, and we, we, and, and we need to, and, and when you surrender to it, I think, I think the, it, the process of healing begins and, and, and forgiveness of your, of self and all those things will make a, the likelihood that next time things are going to be better. I mean, I know that that's, that sounds a little bit witchy stuff right there that I just said, but, but it's true. My, my job as a, as a, as a, the practitioner that I am right now is to be really honest with people and not plant seeds of doubt, not say something like, geez, you're seven weeks with twins, we'll be planning your C-section at 37 weeks. I mean, how, I don't even know that these people ever hear themselves speak or they'd even recognize that they were saying anything wrong if they did. Um, but I, I love what I'm doing. I, want, I would love more people to follow in the, in the hybrid model that I've been practicing and, and to be able to refer and use people in their, in their community like you, like Bliss, like some of the wonderful doulas we have here, some of the wonderful naturopathic people that we have. This is not something in the Western medicine, we're taught that Western medicine is it and everybody else is ridiculous. And uh, the idea that acupuncture has any role or anything like that is, is sort of frowned upon in residency program. And we don't learn that sort of thing. But it's, you know, even the studies, the scientific studies now, I, I personally know many fertility clinics that are working hand in hand with acupuncturists. So that's really exciting. We're starting to see some integration. We know in birth that many women are going to acupuncture for pregnant, for prenatal support and even support inducing going into her. Um, so there is, there is an exciting synergy. There has to be, there has to be because the medical model has failed us. In so many ways, in so many ways, it's failed us. And in our profession, I mean, do we really believe one third of women can't deliver their babies vaginally? Do we really believe that that um, every baby needs like all these vaccines? Do we really believe that this is actually good for us? And we're finding out that no, it's not necessarily good for us. And the medical model isn't adapting and and I'm hoping, you know, I don't want to see it become extinct, but I sort of do, <laughs> because 
I think there needs to be a whole different uh, way of looking at things. The, the medical industrial complex has way too much a hold on things and they make it really hard for people like, I mean, I'm not for third party payers and insurance and stuff like that, but it'd be a lot cheaper for somebody with insurance to come and, and them to, for them to cover your services than it would be for them to go to a bunch of fertility and reproductive endocrinologists and blah, 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 who do all kinds of stuff on them, charging lots and lots of money. And the outcomes are probably no better than if they were to come and see Ivy. Um, yeah. And and seen that I've had I've had women that come to me and you know, for fertility, I like to work in a six-month program. Sometimes I'll do like a three-month fertility jumpstart, but really, especially if someone's having fertility challenges, we need a full six months to dive into all the layers of what we talked about today. And you know, when they when here what what I charge, which is not cheap, a lot of times they're like, oh, well, I can't afford that with everything I've already paid, the co-pays for the fertility specialist. And sometimes I've, I had, I've had several clients that come to me, they'll be like a year later. And they're like, okay, we're, you know, sometimes it's when people are ready to give up, they're like, okay, we'll try something else. And then they're able to get pregnant when they actually harness their body's natural capacity. Yeah. Because even if you're doing ART, you want your body working in your favor. It's still going to be happening in your body. You're still, it's still going to be your eggs unless you're using an egg donor. And even then your body's ability to receive the, the transfer is it's your body at the end of the day. Well, as long as I've known you, you've been doing great work. And, the, and that's why I wanted you on the podcast because I've been listening to your Instagram TV things and I wanted to get you a, a larger audience because I think people need to hear that this stuff is available. And if people want to uh, follow you or, or listen to you. We don't, we don't actually call it followers on, on the Birthing Instincts podcast. We call it fellow travelers because I don't like the term followers. Yeah, you know that because followers sort of says there's a hierarchy and I don't like that no. at all. So, so no, I call it my community, my tribe, the, the sexy, sacred fertility sisterhood tribe. So, so yeah, join our community. I have a free gift that I'm going to be releasing, which is a way to test what I call your FQ. So Dr. Stu, you've heard of your IQ, of course, and your EQ, which tests emotional intelligence. Yeah, so your, yeah there's a big difference between my two, but that's okay. <laughs> for all of us. So your FQ, your fertility quotient, is going to look at how fertile your lifestyle is. So it's a quick, easy assessment you can take to just kind of gauge where you're at in terms of your lifestyle and how the way you're living, your daily habits support your fertility. So if you want to receive that, you can hop over to my Instagram profile, which is at Ivy Joeva. Will you spell that out? Ivy, yeah. So Ivy, my name is like you spell the plant, Ivy or Ivy League, Ivy And then Joeva is J-O-E as an elephant, V as in violin, A as an apple. And the link is in my bio to sign up to receive your, your free gift. And I also created a digital curriculum. I'm going to be releasing an online course um, in September, actually. So that's, that's kind of a secret, but I'm letting you all know that's, that's brewing now. And this is going to take you by the hand and guide you on this journey through each of the foundations of fertility that we talked about today and they'll find all that in your you'll be posting all that on your link on your on your bio link in uh in instagram and and we, yeah, and we and, instagram is the is the best way to join my community but you can also find me at ivjueva.com and learn about all the ways that i support women with fertility and pregnancy 
birth and postpartum there as well. And we will put all of that into the show notes so people can just, uh, you know, people who click on our podcast, it'll be in the show notes, how to connect to, to Ivy. Um, Ivy, I can't thank you enough. I, I, like I said at the beginning, and I've said several times, when I listen to you, uh, um, it just it just enhances the belief that what that my evolution to where I am right now was was the right thing to uh, to do. It was a strange, weird path that got me here, but the fact that I uh, the people that I've met along this road, and you're one of them, have really um, made a huge difference in the lives of the people that you and I have cared for. And um, I'm hoping, you know, again, I can only do what I can do and you can only do what you can do, but, but we want to reach people to maybe make a little ripple effect so that that ripple becomes a bigger ripple and becomes a wave someplace. And we change things because the way things have been going overall in the medical community is, are not great. And you're right, there are changes coming. And I, and I think they're positive. And I'm really honored that you uh, would spend an hour. I guess we've been on for more than an hour um, to give me your time and give us some of your wisdom. Thank you. It is such an honor to be here with you, Dr. Stu. Thank you so much. I mean, as much as we are friends and colleagues, I also see you as a mentor. And to be a fellow traveler on this journey with you is such a gift as you are to every woman and family whose lives you touch. I hope you enjoyed that interview with uh, Ivy Joeva from uh, Bali. And she wants you to know that the field of fertility has become so medicalized that it can feel disempowering and take the joy and pleasure out of trying to conceive. Jumpstart Your Fertility is a program for women who want to prepare the, the transformational journey of becoming a mother physically, emotionally, and spiritually. The Jumpstart Your Fertility journey empowers women with the knowledge and tools that they need to bring sexy back into the process of conceiving. I think we could all use some more of that. The course offers a step-by-step -step guide for optimizing fertility with natural lifestyle protocol rooted in both modern science and ancient wisdom. You can find more about her Jumpstart Fertility program at Ivy Joeva on Instagram or at ivyjoeva.com is her website. And I think maybe spell Joeva. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Uh, mm -hmm. Joeva, I think I might've done that when she was, but anyway, Joeva. <laughs> <laughs> Joeva, J-O-E-V-A. So it's I-V-Y-J-O-E-V-A.com or at Ivy Joeva. Thanks, Bliss, for that. So Bliss, what's next on your agenda? Where are you headed to next? Once you have these few days in Idaho, where are you headed to? Um, I think we're going to decide whether we want to go to Salt Lake City or Reno. Um, and then um, the plan is to get my boys set up in an apartment in Sacramento. So I'll be in Sacramento with family and uh, the boys for maybe a week or two. Um, and then Alex Evangeliti, who's one of our midwifery friends, has invited me to go up to Lake Tahoe. So I'll plan to do that for a few days with her and then travel on and uh, find a time when you and I can um, backpack in someplace together which I'm also very much looking forward to and I think it would be fun before we go in or after maybe after we come out uh recording a podcast together sounds exciting it sounds really uh we're all nobody's envious we're all so happy for you oh uh, well I miss you guys in person but I do think that uh you know, as I mentioned in one of my posts, you know, the, the journey is for me, the journey is for my boys and for the memory of Sky. But it's also every time 
I'm thinking about my growth and this soul journey that I'm walking, I really am thinking about every single person that is connected with me. And so it's for all of us together as humans. And finally, an update. Um, last week's podcast, I talked about the tale of two castor oils. And mm -hmm. um, one went like a bat out of hell. The other one didn't work at all with a set of twins. It's now been two weeks since castor oil was given to the two twins. I mean, well, two twins, that's, that's a tautology, I think that is. Um, the twin mom, she's now 40 weeks and three days as you and I are speaking right now. She's still pregnant, walking around. Her body her. Was, yeah, she hasn't had yeah. another exam in two weeks, but you know, she was five to six centimeters last week. So she's been walking around, the twins look great. They had testing today. They both had perfect uh, uh, biophysical profile scores. Um, but she's at this point really had it. So she wants to try again, but not with castor oil. So uh, in a day or two, I don't, I'm not probably tomorrow or tomorrow night, gonna go in and we're gonna try to do a membrane sweep. I'm gonna camp out somewhere near, nearby her home and hopefully we can get her into labor. I've put out a feeler to the midwives on her team about any other cauldron stuff that we might be able to use that's safe. Not a big fan of blue and black cohosh anymore. So I'm not doing that, but um, anyway, she's had it. So we're gonna try some minimal meddling this week, not the usual birthing instincts uh, motto, but we're gonna try for her choice. because she's, yeah, it's her choice. It's an informed yeah. consent. And she just, yeah. yeah, and she does not wanna to go to the hospital. She doesn't want Pitocin and I don't blame her. She doesn't need it. Everything's yeah. fine. And really we could wait longer. Like I had a woman last year with twins who went to 41 weeks in two days. We offered her things to try to do earlier and she refused everything. And when it finally went into labor at 41 and two and had her babies and that was fine. But this woman, um, you know, she's been really patient because she's been the one that was itchy and does not have cholestasis. Uh, so we're gonna try to help her out. So I will have an update for you at next week's podcast. Hopefully we'll have a, a great story to tell you. And until then, again, we love that you are here to listen to us and we will be back uh, next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.